Well, as you all have figured out by now, throughout the month of October, we've been devoting all of our time to study some of the key differences between Catholicism and Christianity. After the age of Christ and the apostles, and especially after the age of persecution, as the church became more powerful, things changed. More and more new beliefs and practices were added that weren't found in in the Bible. And in time that the church, now deemed Catholic or universal, had really morphed into something new, really not the Church of the New Testament. In the Middle Ages, a few tried to speak up and out against the corrupt beliefs and practices of the Catholic Church. Most of them were simply put to death by the church, men like John Wycliffe, John Huss. However, in the 1500s, along came Martin Luther, who assisted with the uh, printing press, could not be so easily silenced. And Luther lit the match that started a firestorm of reform in Europe and England. Really, it was more like a revolution, though, as it became clear that the church could not be reformed from within, had to be reformed from without. Hence, the Protestant Reformation was born. And as we've said, again, many times, but here we are very close now to October 31st. Back in 1517 marked the, the formal beginning of this Reformation time. And so in a few days, we come to that 500-year anniversary, which is a big deal, big deal for us. It's an occasion to reflect on this history, which is a part of our history, a history that marks going back to Scripture alone for all that we believe, all that we do as the church. Now, speaking of Scripture alone, the major contrast between Catholics and Christians by these new Protestants later came to be summarized by five points, these five pillars express that the fundamental differences between Catholics and Christians. And so on each of the five Sundays throughout October, we've been looking at these five solas of the Reformation, the word sola meaning alone in Latin. And so far we've covered sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and solus Christus, Christ alone, It means there's one left, which we come to give our attention to this morning, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. And really, this last one ties together all the others, whereas sola scriptura, scripture alone, it's the foundation on which everything is built. This last one, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, it's really the end of all things, the purpose of, of all that we say and do. And so along these lines, I'll give you another one of these extended introductions just to let you know why this is such a big deal, why this is such a a big contrast between Catholicism and Christianity. Take you one more time back to Martin Luther. Luther, not the only reformer, but we keep picking on him because he did get the ball rolling. And so there's a story we actually heard on, on Sunday nights a while ago where Luther, at first, he entered law school in Germany per the wishes of his father. Back then, he, like pretty much everybody, was was still a Roman Catholic. But in 1505, at one day while returning to university after a trip home, he got caught out in the countryside, in the countryside in a thunderstorm, and a bolt of lightning struck the ground right next to him and knocked him off his feet. And he was terrified. And so naturally, what did he do? But cry out for help. However, he didn't cry out to God. He cried out to St. Anne, and he said, St. Anne, help me, I will become a monk. St. Anne was the patron patron saint of minors, which his father was, and also the one known to help people in storms. 
So he prayed to the right saint. He prayed to St. Anne to help him during this time. And Luther, he, he survived, and he carried out his vow. He left law school. He entered the monastery shortly thereafter. The reason I bring this up, though, is Luther's knee-jerk reaction in that moment as a Catholic to pray, not to God, but to a saint, is very par for the course back then for Catholics and still today. I remember one time when I was a little kid, I had lost a, a video game magazine. And before the internet, that was a thing for kids. That was a thing you got, a, a magazine about video games. But anyway, I couldn't find it anywhere. And so I, I remember that's when my grandmother, who I've mentioned several times, a very sweet lady, but very Catholic as well, she told me to pray for help in, in finding it. Only she told me not, not to pray to God, but to St. Anthony, who is the patron saint of lost things. In Catholic tradition, the saints are like super Christians who are thereafter venerated by the faithful. And this includes praying to them for help in their specific area. And over time, a large catalog of saints has been formed. St. Jude helps those who are hopeless. St. Peregrine helps those who are fighting cancer. St. Christopher helps those who are traveling. The list goes on and on. Some are very specific, very peculiar. St. Lucy lost her eyes as a martyr, so now she helps those with eye ailments. St. Ludwina was crippled when she fell on ice, so now she's the patron saint of ice skaters. And St. Arnulf miraculously resuplenished a supply of beer. And so now he's the patron saint of beer. These are not jokes, by the way. This is just true. Now, I'm sure Catholics raised in such tradition, they never think twice about it, but they will find themselves praying to these saints in really the, the same way we would pray to God. Although there's no mention of such prayers to saints anywhere in the Bible, it really is a big part of Catholic tradition, daily practice, and it fits this bigger concept of veneration, the veneration of saints and angels. Catholics claim they reserve worship for God alone, but they sure do venerate their saints and the angels. A big part of this veneration is icons. Icons refers to just representations of the saints, whether it's a painting or a statue or a shrine, or so forth. Found in, in many Catholic churches, you will there find many of the Catholic faithful kneeling or bowing down or even lying prostrate in front of these icons in personal prayer and devotion to the saint or angel for help. Catholics will also often carry or wear little medallions featuring an image of a saint, usually their family's patron saint. These medals give a feeling of comfort because you know that no, no matter where you go, you also have your patron saint there with you to, to guide you, to help you, and so forth. In fact, I also remember back when I got my first car, my grandma gave me this little tiny picture of Mary and told me to, to keep it in my car and that she would help guard me from car accidents. And speaking of Mary, Catholics take this concept of veneration to a whole new level when it comes to Mary. So let me continue this introduction about the, the differences between Christians and Catholics. And this is a big one. I'll tell you a little bit about Catholic Mariology. That's what they might call it, the doctrine of Mary. Mary is really only mentioned a handful of times in the Bible. But over the centuries, Catholic tradition concerning Mary just grew and grew. 
And over time, these beliefs evolved, and Mary became more like this divine figure from birth to life to death to her role now in heaven. It starts with the Immaculate Conception. That's not about Jesus. That's about Mary. For Mary to give birth to a sinless Jesus, they reasoned, well, Mary had to be free from sin as well. And so Mary was declared to be free from uh, Corruption, the corruption of original sin. She had no sin nature. Herself being conceived sinless. She was free from all stain and blemish of sin. She even lived a sinless life. Next comes Mary's perpetual virginity. After giving birth to Jesus, they say that Mary remained perpetually a virgin. Mary's womb was seen as a shrine of the Holy Spirit. And for that to change was seen as beneath her dignity. And so Catholics believe Mary never had any sexual relations with her husband Joseph, even after Jesus was born, but remained a virgin. Then, of course, comes the assumption of Mary being without sin and without original sin and being full of grace. It only makes sense that Mary was not going to die a normal death. And so rather her body and soul were taken directly to heaven like Elijah. She was assumed bodily into heaven, where now she sits at the right hand of Jesus. And there, being the mother of grace, Mary lives forever to make intercession for the church. And she's now the channel of grace for all believers. And her requests before her son can never be refused. Mary, though, she still shows up on earth from time to time. And most Catholics hold to what are called apparitions of saints, but usually of Mary, apparitions of Mary. She's appeared dozens of times throughout history. And to date, she's appeared to over 10 million people. And when she appears, she tells the Catholic faithful to express more devotion to her and to pray the rosary. All of these beliefs about Mary in turn lead to this, again, this concept of veneration. Mary is venerated above all saints and angels, She's blessed with many honorific titles, like Mother of God, the Mother of the Church, the Queen of Heaven and Earth. Catholics express their devotion to Mary primarily by praying the Rosary, which is a series of prayers. And the Rosary is is consisted of, for every one prayer to God, you would pray ten times to Mary. That's how the, the Rosary works, 50 times altogether. Of course, Catholics say that they don't worship Mary or the saints. They make a distinction. They they venerate the saints. That's called dulia in Latin. Mary's veneration is higher, hyperdulia, but that's still less than the adoration they give to God, which goes by the Latin term latria. And so they say, well, they only worship God. Mary and the saints are just venerated. Now, all that being said, unless you have a Catholic background, you may not have ever heard any of that about Mary. And the reason that is, is none of these teachings come from the Bible. All of these, without exception, come purely from Catholic tradition over the years. In fact, most are quite recent. Mary's sinlessness was declared in 1547. Her Immaculate Conception was declared by Pope Pius IX in 1854. And her Assumption into Heaven wasn't declared until Pope Pius XII in 1950. This is very recent. In reality, though, there's just a small handful of passages that actually mention Mary in the Bible. If you've read your New Testament, you know this. She obviously shows up 
in the birth narrative of Jesus. And there she plays a part, of course. But after that, she shows up just a few more times, mostly falling to the background when the ministry of Christ gets going. She does appear at the crucifixion, witnessing the crucifixion. And thereafter, she appears one more time with the early church in Acts chapter 1. But after that, she's gone. She's not mentioned another time after Acts chapter 1. In fact, in the whole Bible, there's not a single command or direction or actual instruction about Mary. This is not to say Mary is not blessed among women. She is, like the angel said. But you won't find a single shred of support for venerating Mary in the same way that Catholics do. The Bible says nothing about her birth or her death. To the contrary, Mary, she was a sinner in need of salvation, just like everyone else. The same path of salvation of faith in her son, just like everyone else. In fact, she recognized God was her savior, she said in Luke 137. Catholics admit that Mary was redeemed by her son, but if she was sinless, why does she need to be redeemed? Why why does she need a savior? Yet in Luke 2.24, Mary offers a purification sacrifice at the temple. And that's because she, she knew she was a sinner with a sin nature, just like everyone else. And I've always wondered, you know, if Mary had to be free from sin to give birth to Jesus, him being free from sin, doesn't that mean Mary's mother had to be free from sin too, to give birth to her without sin? And how far back does that go? Never answered. Also, the perpetual virginity of Mary, this one is just straight up directly contradicted by Scripture. Matthew 1.25 says that Joseph kept Mary a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus. Key word, until. In fact, three other times, Scripture directly references that Jesus had many brothers. Catholics claim that these weren't really brothers, they were cousins, because there's no Hebrew word for cousin. But there is a Greek word for cousin, It's used elsewhere in the New Testament. But the writers, they use the word for brothers to teach very clearly Jesus had many brothers born, obviously, after him. Anyway, you have all these beliefs about Mary, and they're just made up over the course of centuries. None of them come from the Bible. None of them have even a shred of support from the Bible. And so when the Reformation began, And all these people were making a return to Scripture alone for everything we believe, everything we do. Just what does the Bible say? It was just a matter of time before all these practices and beliefs about Mary were jettisoned. Uh, All these dogmas and, and the veneration of Mary and the saints, they were all dropped pretty quick by this new Protestant church. It's just not in the Bible. In fact, many believed, rightly so, that the Catholic veneration of Mary and the saints, amounted to idolatry. And sure, the Catholic Church can, can pay lip service to God, claiming to worship him alone, but their practices betray them as they, ex, they, they transfer really all the modes of worship to, to Mary and to the saints. And they, can, they can say what they want, but they give much of God's glory to, to man and to Mary. Hopefully no, uh, now rather, At the very least, you understand why this last sola, this last pillar of the Reformation is is a big one. It's last, but it's not least. It's it's a big deal. Soli Deo, Gloria, glory to God alone. Man is not worthy of worship or veneration. Mary 
is not worthy of worship or veneration. That's because they're creatures. They're not the creator. They're not the redeemer. Only the triune God is worthy of worship, adoration, veneration. Because he alone is supreme. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's our only redeemer. And therefore, all of our worship, 100%, belongs to God alone. Anything else? You can call it whatever you want. The Bible calls it idolatry. And so we will very much stand here with soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. Not glory to God and the saints, not glory to God and Mary, but glory to God alone. And with the rest of our time now, we're going to explore this glory to God alone. Each week I've been giving you these extended introductions just to explain some of the major differences between Catholics and Christians. And here we've uncovered another massive difference. So why don't we venerate Mary and the saints? How come Christian churches have no images of the saints? Why don't we have little statues of Mary, like my grandma had in her backyard, in her garden? Why, why don't we recite the rosary? Well, let, let's turn to Scripture now and find out. Let's find out why we give all the glory and honor and praise to the triune God alone. And just as a baseline fact, I want us to establish the obvious, namely that only God is to be worshipped. Only God is to be worshipped. What is the glory of God? As an attribute or characteristic, God's glory refers to his majesty, his splendor, his brilliance. It is his godness, you could say. The Hebrew word for glory connotes a sense of weight. But God's glory is a supreme weightiness. His being is weightier, infinitely weightier than, than all others put together. And he is infinitely worthy, therefore, of, of praise by creation. What makes God so supreme or, or weighty? It is his person and his works. His person and his works. God in his person. He's exalted above all others by his attributes, being matchless in power and knowledge and goodness and justice. He's perfect in all his ways. He's eternal. He's self-existent. No beginning, no end. Just, just stop and think for a second about a being who has no beginning, who's self-existent, never created, just has always existed. And, and sit back and, and as you ponder God's self-existence and, and, and sit back in awe, and speaking of, you know, you go outside, you look up at the stars, and you see the vastness of the universe. It, it fills you with this sense of awe. And that's because you have a built-in response of worship to things that are greater than you. However, knowing that God is behind all that, that he made the whole universe with just a word, we should therefore transfer all of that worship to God alone. All responses of wonder and amazement of worship and praise, should be directed to God alone. So God is to be praised for his person, who he is. He's also to be praised for his works, the things he's done. Of course, first and foremost, there's creation. He, he made everything. He's put his glory on display through his work of creation. And creation now praises God. It, it reveals the fingerprints of God, the, the works of his hands. It showcases his glory now, creation itself is personified in Scripture as glorifying God. 
For example, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the, of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. So all creation declares God's praise. And all the more so, so should we. We too have been created by God in his image. Isaiah 43, verse 7 even says, God created us for his glory. He made us to reflect and show off his glory. So all the more so, we should join all of creation in declaring his praise. God even gave us voices to do that. So we should be praising God. There's a second work for which we praise God. Creation, also redemption. His other great work. We were created for God's glory. Scripture also teaches we were saved for his glory. This is clear over in Ephesians 1. By the way, we're looking at a lot of verses today. If you're fast, you can follow along, but I'm just going to keep going. But in Ephesians 1, that there, we as the church, we bless God. We don't bless Mary. We don't bless the saints or the angels. We bless God. Why? Because he saved us. It says, he saved us. Salvation is his triune work alone. God alone called us, predestined us, chose us, put us in Christ. To what end? Verse 6 says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Same goes for Jesus, God the Son, who accomplished this work of redemption. Jesus obtained an inheritance for us. To what end? Verse 12 says to the end that we would be to the praise of his glory. And even the Holy Spirit partakes who after believe, after we believed, we we're sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of our inheritance. Verse 14, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Three times, Father, Son, Spirit, all partaking in our, our salvation, the work of salvation. To what end? Three times, to the praise of his glory. There's no mention of the saints here. There's no mention of Mary in this work of salvation for which we praise God. God is called the father of glory in verse 17. There's no mention of Mary anywhere as the mother of glory. Ephesians 3.21, as Paul wraps, wraps up the whole section, he says, To him, to God, be the glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. What a perfect place for Paul to stop and just also mention Mary. You know, to God be the glory and also praise be to Mary. To venerate Mary or the saints. But he doesn't. Mary doesn't show up once in any of the epistles. Not a, even a passing reference to her veneration anywhere. And this is why we give all the praise to God alone. 1 Chronicles 16.29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering. Come before him. Worship the Lord in holy array. God is, in fact, jealous. Jealous for his own glory. Rightly so. Nothing else is worthy of his praise. To give any praise to any other created thing is, is to rob God of that which is rightfully his. Being supreme. Hence, glory is one commodity that God does not share. 
For example, Isaiah 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Same with Isaiah 48, 11. God will not share his glory. He can't. Otherwise, he would be committing idolatry by giving praise to something that is not worthy. We see this reflected in God's redemption of Israel as he redeemed them, brought them to Mount Sinai, gave them his commands. And his, his very first commands all had to do with, with what? With exclusive worship. Exclusive worship. No exceptions. And so as he's given the Ten Commandments, you know, Exodus 20, 2 through 5, God said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And so you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Catholics today say they don't worship Mary and the saints. They just serve them. But the Bible says you shall not worship them or serve them. God said, make no images of any created thing to bow down before them. Yet Catholics today literally fill their churches with images of humans, saints, Mary, little trinkets and statutes and paintings. They light candles to them. They bow down to them. They pray to them. How is that not idolatry? Again, of course, Catholics are quick to defend themselves saying that they only give glory to God, only God is worthy of glory. And they hide behind semantics. Again, only God gets latria, meaning adoration. Mary and the saints, they get dulia. It's a lesser form of veneration. And so because of these Latin words, you see, only God gets glory. And Mary and the saints, they just get, you know, high honors. But hopefully you see the problem with this. For one, the Hebrew word for glory is translated into both latria and dulia in the Latin. There's just, these are all terms of worship. So theirs is a false distinction to begin with. But more than that, you, you can play semantics all you want, but actions speak louder than words. Theirs is a, a distinction without a difference. And latria to God, dulia to, to the saints and Mary. That's called a distinction without a real difference. Their actions betray them because there's no difference in how they treat God and Mary and the saints. John Calvin later wrote much to expose the hypocrisy of Catholics here. He said, quote, however eloquent they may be with their words, they will never prove that one and the same thing makes two. End quote. He went on to say, and I'll paraphrase that, you know, just as the murderer cannot escape his sentence by giving his crime a more advantageous name. So it's absurd for them to expect that, you know, the subtle device of a name change will, will get them off the hook for idolatry. Because, in fact, their worship of Mary and the saints, in form and function, it's the same as their worship of God. The form and the function of their worship is just the same. To Mary, to the saints, to Jesus, to God. They do all the same things. Just think, how is worship to God expressed? We've got the attitudes of worship, reverence, respect, admiration, wonder, a sense of awe, all of which Catholics ascribe to 
Mary and the saints. You have the positions of worship, for example, like kneeling or bowing down or lying prostrate, all of which the Catholics ascribe to Mary and the saints. Then you have the actions of worship, primarily prayer and praise, both of which Catholics ascribe to Mary and the saints. Speaking of praise, what is praise but the declaration of the glory of God based on his person and his works? But you'll find more declarations of praise to Mary and to the saints by Catholics in their liturgy by volume. And what is prayer? But the chief expression of faith and trust in God. Prayer may be the highest expression of worship. Think about that. We're having a new prayer meeting on Monday. You should think about how prayer is the highest expression of faith and worship. Prayer requires, for it to be genuine, actual faith. You've got to really believe in God and, and complete trust that he is, that he's there, that he can hear, that he can respond. He has the ability to save. It, it's just a whole package of faith. Like You really believe in God, and so you're praying. It's a complete expression of true faith, and that is worship to God. Yet Catholics, they spend more time praying to Mary and the saints than to God. They turn Mary and the saints into objects of faith to whom they cry out in trust to deliver them. Again, how is that not idolatry? You can give it another label, but in form and function, how is that not idolatry. The whole notion of praying to Mary and the saints is patently unbiblical. I mean, just think, just because, for example, Mary is now in heaven, that doesn't mean she all of a sudden became omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. When does that happen? Listen, no person in heaven even has the ability to hear your prayers because they're not omniscient. You don't become omniscient when you go to heaven. They can't hear and process millions of prayers from earth at the same time because they're not God. That's the whole point. And they also, they can't answer your prayers. They can't do a single thing to answer your prayers because they're not omnipotent like God. They don't have power. But you know what? That's okay because they're not God. God is God. We'll leave that to him. That's totally fine. But the Catholic Church, they essentially attribute to Mary and the saints, these divine characteristics and attributes. The saints and Mary, in function, become divine figures who can hear prayers, who can answer prayers, who have a measure of sovereignty. They can intercede before us, before Jesus. But this is all patently false, unbiblical, and idolatrous. They can slap a different label on their worship of Mary and the saints. But it's a, it's a distinction without a difference. And for us, the Bible is crystal clear, soli deo gloria. Glory to God alone in all expressions. Anything else, anything contrary must be completely abandoned and called out for what it is, idolatry. Now we're not quite finished because not only do Catholics attribute to Mary and the saints these, these attributes of deity and therefore worship. They also attribute to them the, the works of deity, namely redemption. This is a, a big one with Mary. 
I mentioned earlier how God alone is to be worshipped for his person and his works. And chief among his works is redemption. Redemption is an exclusive work of God. No one shares in that work. It's the work of the triune God alone. Only God has the power and authority to deliver us from death and grant us life eternal. That's why, for example, in Isaiah 43, God told Israel he was their only creator and only redeemer. Isaiah 43, verse 3, God said to them, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 10, he says, before me there was no God formed, and there will be after me none. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. There's no Savior besides me. God alone is creator. God alone is Savior. These are divine works. Turning to the New Testament, though, we find now that Jesus is this Savior. This truth, though, is not contradictory. It's complementary because who is Jesus? He is God come down. He's Yahweh incarnate, come to save his people. He's Emmanuel, God with us. The one who fulfills all these prophecies of God as Savior, Yahweh as Savior. And so it's for this reason we can rightfully worship Jesus. He does share in the divine person and in the divine works, being divine, being God the Son. That's why we can rightfully worship Jesus without committing idolatry. And of course, the chief work Jesus came to do was redemption. You know, the angel said not that Mary would save her people, but that her son would do all the saving. Matthew one twenty one. she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's no mention of Mary participating. By the way, Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's a divine work. This is why the apostles, who were strict monotheistic Jews, they still had no problem saying this in Acts 4.12, that there is salvation in no one else, speaking of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. They understood Jesus was the divine Messiah and therefore worthy of the same praise we give to God the Father. And so like Peter says, all that we say and do, 1 Peter 4.11, is so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Everything we say and do is to the glory of God. Through Jesus, we give our worship exclusively to this triune God, especially for his work of salvation. Now, sadly, though, this is not a part of Catholic doctrine. Catholics in belief and practice, they have traded Jesus for Savior, uh, Jesus as Savior, rather, for Mary as Savior. At the very least, they've turned Mary into a second Savior, and they give much of Christ's exclusive glory to Mary for salvation. I mentioned how Catholics believe Mary was born without sin and then ascended into heaven like Jesus. But there's actually more I didn't mention. She also officially holds the role of co-redeemer of the church. She's the co-redeemer. How? First, 
By giving consent to bear Jesus in her womb, she's credited as participating in God's work of salvation. It's often said of her, quote, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. With the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith, end quote. So you've got Jesus, he's a second Adam, Mary becomes a second Eve. And they often say, through Eve, death, through Mary, life. Secondly, though, Mary, she's also portrayed as actively offering up Jesus on the cross to the Father. That she was the one who offered her son on the cross to the Father to make atonement for sins, and thereby partaking in redemption. She's said to have suffered with Jesus emotionally, while he was on the cross. So Mary suffered in her heart all the pain that Jesus suffered in his body. The Catholic source says this, quote, that Mary so grievously suffered and almost died with her suffering and dying son, she so wholeheartedly renounced her maternal rights over her son for the salvation of men and immolated her son, that means offered up, as far as was in her power, to placate God's justice that she may deservedly be said to have redeemed the human race along with Christ. She may deservedly be said to have redeemed the human human race along with Christ, end quote. This is why she's called the co-redeemer of mankind, the queen of heaven and earth. The Catholic catechism also says, quote, In a wholly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. She cooperated in this work. For this reason, she's a mother to us in the order of grace, end quote. And this leads to Mary's role as mediatrix, co-redeemer, mediatrix. That means female mediator, by the way. And so she sits in heaven now as our intercessor, our mediator to the Son. The Catholic Catechism continues saying, quote, Taken up into heaven, she did not lay aside this saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation, end quote. She still has her saving office. Jesus, he's the mediator before God. But we need a mediator before Jesus, and, and that's Mary. And now being our mediatrix, all saving grace flows through Mary, from Jesus, but it channels through Mary. Very formal Catholic theologian Ludwig said, quote, According to God's positive ordinance, the redemptive grace of Christ is conferred on nobody without the actual intercessory cooperation of Mary, end quote. So in other words, no one gets the grace needed for salvation but through Mary. Jesus is the head, Mary's the neck. You need them both. It's got to go through both. In effect, though, Catholics have essentially duplicated Jesus as Savior through Mary. Jesus was born without sin. Mary was born without sin. Jesus was sinless. Mary was sinless. Jesus suffered on the cross. Mary suffered while Jesus was on the cross. Jesus redeemed us. Mary redeemed us. Jesus ascended into heaven. Mary ascended into heaven. Jesus intercedes for us now at the right hand of God. Mary intercedes for us now at the right hand of her son. 
Jesus is the channel of all saving grace. Mary is the channel of all saving grace. Jesus is the object of our faith, prayer, and praise. Mary is the object of our faith, prayer, and praise. Jesus is the king of heaven and earth. Mary is the queen of heaven and earth. And so you see, Mary, she's at the very least duplicated Christ's role as Savior. And look, if this is true, if Mary really is our our co-redeemer and the channel of grace, she should be praised and worshipped. Forget veneration, she should be worshipped in the same way as we worship God in Christ. If she really has divine character and, and divine works, we should be praying and praising Mary. But she doesn't. She was just another sinner, redeemed like all the rest. She played no part in Christ's exclusive work of redemption at all. I hope you recognize none of this Catholic doctrine about Mary comes from the Bible. Not a single shred of any of this is supported by any verse in the Bible. It's all made up tradition. Mary did not offer up her son on the cross in any way. Rather, Hebrews 9.14 says Jesus offered up himself on the cross to the Father. Christ alone, rather in Christ alone, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians 1.14 says. No mention of Mary. 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's only one mediator, no mention of Mary, a second mediator, which would even contradict that verse. In fact, it's just there's nothing. Nothing is said anywhere of Mary or the saints participating in Christ's work of redemption. Rather, it's always exclusive. John 14:6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me and my mother. He didn't say that. He stopped at me. No one comes through the Father but through me. Catholics say Mary is the door to enter heaven, but the Bible says Jesus is that door, the only door, the only one who gives us exclusive access to God, the only name under heaven given by which we must be saved. Catholics say Mary has a secondary role in salvation. The Bible says she has no role in salvation. And that's why she is to be exalted in person and works, not at all, for, in no manner or no respect to be exalted for her person, for her works. I want you to think about this. Matthew 4, 8 through 10, I'll read it. Christ's temptation in the wilderness. Matthew 4, 8. It says, again, the devil took him, Jesus, to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. It's been Satan's job from the beginning to try and diminish God's glory. And he's succeeded in the Catholic Church. The worship of Mary and the saints, it's nothing short of what the Bible would call the doctrine of demons. Satan, who disguises himself as an angel of light, has found a very fitting idol, no longer golden calf no longer needed, a very fitting idol in Mary, and has led astray millions. But for you, be warned, beware. Scripture teaches the opposite. Christ believed 
in God's glory alone. And you want to talk about heaven, think about Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You know, John's throne room vision of God. You have all the saints, all the angels, they're all gathered in heaven. You have the elders of Israel, the, the apostles of the church. They're all gathered. Everyone's there. But all the focus, all the worship, all the glory is directed where? To God and to the Lamb. Like we sung this morning, to God and to the Lamb, Father and Son. Zero mention is made of Mary. She's present for sure. She would be there. But she gets zero attention, zero glory next to God and the Son. She doesn't get a passing mention. Rather, she plus all the redeemed, they all plant their noses in the ground in their worship of God alone. So Revelation 5.13 says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the only picture of soli deo gloria you need. Glory to God alone. Anything more is idolatry. Anything more is unbiblical. Anything more we have to stand and, and speak against like the reformers started to do 500 years ago. I really hope if you've learned anything in this little series on the Reformation, that you've learned truth starts and ends with Scripture alone. You have to go back to Scripture alone to get it right. The foundation has to be God's Word. And if you do, it's going to lead you to salvation, a right understanding of salvation, which is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other way. There's no other Savior but Christ. And if you get that straight, it's going to lead you to God's glory alone. No one else is worthy of worship but our triune saving God. I'll finish with this. Just one last passage. It's pretty remarkable, though. Again, I'll just read it to you. You've got Jesus. He's teaching the crowd, right? Jesus teaching the crowd. So Luke 11, 27, 28. It says, while Jesus was saying these things and doing some teaching, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. So you have Jesus teaching, and a lady in the crowd cries out, Blessed be your mother. This is it's pretty amazing. This is the first veneration of Mary. Ever. You have this lady who, because Jesus is so great, thinks that your mother must be great too. And she's praising Mary. And this is, this, is, this is amazing. This is an amazing opportunity for Jesus to affirm this, for Jesus to second this, for Jesus to say, you know what, you're right. Praise be to Mary. Perfect opportunity. What does Jesus say? He says, verse 28, but he said, on the contrary, That's a stark contrast, by the way. On the contrary, he says, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Catholics call Mary blessed, full of grace. This verse, this lady says, blessed is Mary, essentially. And and Christ says, well, you know what? On the contrary, you want to know who's really blessed? 
those who hear the word of God and observe it. There you have it from Christ's own mouth. Mary, in a sense, she is blessed among women. She is. But you know what? All the redeemed are blessed by God. That blessing comes from God and it falls on all, not just Mary, but all who what? Who hear the word of God and observe it. You have to get it right. You have to start with scripture alone. And that's going to take you as you heed it to God's glory alone. So make sure that is you. That you are among those who hear the word of God and observe it. And as you are thereafter blessed, then return that blessing to God and to God alone. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Lord God, we we praise you this morning. We give you the glory this morning and your Son through the Spirit. For you are worthy. You are truly worthy of all of our praise, all of our being, our whole lives, our fitting sacrifices for you, Lord. Nothing held back. The one who made all things and in great grace, to the praise of the glory of your grace, Lord, you even redeemed us. You you bought a people back for yourself through the self-giving love of Christ on the cross. His work alone, applied by the Spirit alone. This is your triune saving work, Lord, that we remember and we exalt you for. We've sang it this morning. We will continue to do so forever. You are worthy. May our whole lives be lifted up, Lord. Guard our hearts from any, any corner of idolatry. Anytime we would be tempted to give praise and glory to man, may, we, may it all be redirected and reflected back to you. For all things are from you and through you and then back to you for your glory, our great giver of life and blessing. Lord, we are blessed as we hear the word of God and observe it. And as we are richly blessed, we we return all that blessing to you in the form of praise, for you are worthy. May that capture our hearts this morning and may we leave enthralled by your glory to live for your glory and your glory alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen.